going in, right? Um, it, we're in a series on uh, God's irresistible love for us. And, and what we know of God and what we know about ourselves is that uh, sometimes we don't even know where we're headed. We don't know what we've done. We, a lot of us had no idea that we were on a highway to hell until God broke into our lives. God's a good father, and he's going he's gonna to come in, and he's going he's gonna to save you from death. He's going to violate your free will for a season. And, and this is what we get into. We get into you know, God breaking through, and then we end up into a situation like this, where we're a little confused, and we're, we're not quite sure what's going on. And it all boils down to our inability to relinquish control to God. Tough stuff. See, God has called us. He's called each and every one of us. And, and, and we get the opportunity to say yes. But it is on how we say yes that makes all the difference. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at, at 1 Kings 19 again. So why don't you go ahead and turn to that and, and I don't know, put your bulletin in there, put your finger in there. We're going to get to that at the end of the message today. Um, we'll finish up on Elijah and Elisha. Um, but before we start, let's open up in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that it's beautiful. God, we're thankful for the ability to even come and worship you today. So God, as we, as we begin to look into your word and who you are and what you do, I pray that our, our hearts will be open our minds will be engaged, and our souls will be honest. So, Father, I just pray that you'd reveal yourself today through your word. In your name, amen. All right, so we have, uh, we have problems relinquishing control to God. Even, even you seasoned saints that have been walking with the Lord your entire lives, this is always an issue, and it never goes away. It never goes away. It has to be monitored at some level, but it actually can be overcome. You, you, some of us are stuck in a spiritual rut because we're, we're, we're here. And we haven't won this victory where we have completely relinquished everything to God. We've given him control. And, and we're not sharing the seed anymore. And there's, there's actually two major themes that we're going to talk about. The first theme are the, are the four or five points that are on your bulletin. Uh, the first thing that, that keeps us from truly saying yes to God, from relinquishing all control to him, is fear. Fear. And it is one of the primal emotions. It's one of the primal reactions that we have. It goes all the way back to the garden is fear. Fear keeps us from relinquishing control. I mean, Adam experienced fear. He feared God immediately after he realized what he had done and covered himself up. He hid from God in the spirit of fear. And so we have, to, we have to know about our own fears in order to relinquish control to God. That's one of the major themes. And then the other one is, is the big bad boy. It is our sin nature. It is original sin. So we're going to be looking at those two major themes. That's what keeps us from relinquishing control to God. All right, the first one, fear, fear. Uh, okay, what, 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 is, what is the heart and the essence of fear? Um, one of the first point on your outline, we fear giving up control because of ignorance. Ignorance of God and ignorance of God and his ways. We don't know God. And what you don't know, usually are, you're afraid of. You don't know what the future is, and so you're afraid of the future. You don't truly know God, and therefore you fear him. Or you have projected some negative stuff in your history on the God. So the, the, the classic is parents. So if you have a bad relationship with your father or with your mother who raised you, or maybe there was some dysfunction in the family, the, the natural tendency, the psychological tendency that we have is that we project those negative images, behaviors onto God. So if your father was mean and vindictive and, 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 and you know, that kind of a bad situation, you will project that onto God naturally, whether you realize it or not. 
And so there needs to be healing that takes place on undoing, unwiring that situation. So that's one of the major things that we do. We also think that God is a bully. One of my favorite movies is The Christmas Story, you know, with Ralphie and the, the Red Rider BB gun. And you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? They, um, but, the, you know, the bully that, that, that chases the boys down the street and beats them up and then makes them say uncle, right? Now, God will chase you down the street and occasionally beat you up, but he's not out to twist your arm to make you say uncle. He will save you from your bad decisions. He'll, he'll violate your will like a good father will. But he's not twisting your arm, making you say uncle. Um, so what we know about fear and ignorance is we are afraid of what we don't know. The Bible tells us that, we, that the knowledge of God comes from the fear of God. So there is a, there's a, you know, the Bible talks about fearing God, but that's different than what we're talking about right now. That fear is a, is a reverence towards God. That fear is, a, is an awe towards God. It's not a fear that, that happens when we don't know God. When we don't know God, we think he's out to get us. Here's the truth about God. God is good. And he's good all the time. And everything that he does to you or towards you is good. Everything he does is good. Even the stuff that we don't understand, even the, you know, the difficult situation we might be in. Maybe uh, God's not the author of evil. He doesn't do bad things to hurt you. But you might be in a difficult situation. It actually might be a good thing that God is doing to you. That's, that's another topic altogether. But God is good. We don't know who God is, and therefore we're afraid of him. And that, this is the, the major thing that keeps us from relinquishing control, letting Jesus sit on that stool. We don't know him. In Matthew chapter 6, 32, people who don't know God and the way he works, fuss over things. Okay? So this is the message version. It's in your bulletin. Uh, I just think it's, it's going to translate a little bit better on, on what I'd like to communicate. Um, people who don't know God and the things that he does. So there's, there's two parts. You need to know who God is, and you need to know how he acts. You need to know what he does. And people that don't know this, that have that, you know, that fear, that disconnect of God, they don't have enough knowledge of who God is, well, how do you know that they're fearing him? How do you know if you're fearing him? You fear when you begin to fuss, when you begin to worry. See, whenever you get obsessed with worry with your life, that is showing you that you haven't completely put your trust in him and that you're afraid of something. Now, we all have major issues in our life. We have, we've got big problems. We've got bills to pay. We've got naughty kids. We've got relationships that are, that are you know, in trouble. We've got work issues that are scaring you right now. And so it, it's, pro, it's illegal for me to say, don't worry about that stuff. Just trust in the Lord. Stick your head in the sand and ignore your problems. Right? You, some people say stuff like this. Just trust in God. Don't worry about your problems. He's going to work everything out on his own. You don't have to do a thing. Okay, that, that's, that's not responsible Christian behavior, okay? But you can't be consumed about these things in your life. You have to be proactive. You have to take care of them, but you can't let them consume you. You need to pay attention to them. You, I dare say you need to worry about them, but if you begin to worry about things and it completely consumes you, you're in trouble. Basically, if you worry about something more than you're praying about it, you're in a downward spiral of fear. So worry, they say, worry and anxiety is the absence of presenting your issues and your problems to God in prayer. So we have to, we have to know who God is. We have to understand his ways. And we have to be brave enough to seek him in prayer. And again, 
one of the telltale signs that you are functioning in worry, fear, okay, worry, fear, not trusting in God, is that not only are the big issues in life getting to you, but it's all these other little things that you're fussing about. All the little tiny details drive you nuts. It's the little things that are getting to you now. And what that should be telling you is that you don't know who God is. You don't know him the way that you should. So that's the first thing that we got to consider. We need to know God. Knowledge. We need to seek knowledge. Next major point is idolatry. Now this is kind of a different one because I put idolatry under the category of fear. Now you might be thinking to yourself, idolatry should fall under the category of sin, Josh. Okay, I think technically it does. But for this purpose and this illustration, I'm putting idolatry under the category of fear. What is idolatry? Idolatry, you know, when you read your Bible, idolatry is this thing where, you know, you're worshiping the foreign gods, you're worshiping the wooden idol instead of, you know, Yahweh, right? Jehovah. So you're, you're worshiping the, the idol instead of the invisible, powerful God, creator of the universe. And it's, it's, the, it, it's that, that battle between, you know, the, the earthly realm and the, and the material things, material gods. Um, I, I got to confess, uh, one of the new shows that Mako and I are watching is, uh, is Vikings. Have you seen this show? Uh, it's good. And I think they're doing, as a historian, I think they're doing a good job because these people were awful. They're horrible people. And uh, so they, they're portraying them the way that they should historically. But there was this scene where the chieftain uh, is praying to his god, Odin, his little wooden statue. And he's like, I don't feel your presence anymore. And he throws his idol down and, and then... It was a bad omen. Bad things happened to him after that. But we, this is idolatry. But we think in our modern Western scientific mindset that these things don't exist anymore. They do. Idolatry is alive and well. We don't worship the little wooden idols anymore. You might have friends that worship Buddha, but I'm telling you right now, you have non-religious friends that are worshiping other things. Idolatry is widely expressed in our culture in the area of fashion and money and materialism in cars, in relationships. Basically, you can boil idolatry down to anything that you put above God. Anything that you, you know, when you start prioritizing your life, you know, if it's not, you know, if it's not God, family, church, career, that, that's, that's a good priority. But if the priority is career, family, God, you've got two idols above your God. You have made an idol out of your career. Okay, now, obviously, money is, is, is the one that we use all the time, right? Money is the idol. The, the Bible uses money quite a bit. And, and let's, let's take a look at the scripture in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, You can't worship two gods at once. You will end up hating the other. You can't worship both God and money. But see, it doesn't stop just at money. The, the other translation is you can't worship God and mammon at the same time. Mammon is a spiritual principality over money. So you can't worship them both. You're going you're gonna to resent the other one. And, and, and we do this. We're like, oh, you know, I, 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 I like this lifestyle. And so I'm going to put this lifestyle above God. Or I like this relationship. I put this relationship above God. And it's idolatry. All right. How do you know if you are functioning under the spirit of idolatry? Now here's the fear that comes with, with idolatry. Is that when God calls you, the reason why we don't fully commit and give Jesus the stool, why we kind of like are half on, half off, is because we're afraid he's going to take away the things that we like. Right? That's, that's the fear. We like this stuff. We wouldn't have this stuff if we didn't like it. We think that we're going to lose if we say yes to God and completely relinquish control. We're going to lose fun. 
We're going to lose friends. We're going to lose our status. We might lose some money. We might lose family if we say yes to God. We might lose going to Las Vegas. We might lose, you know, binge drinking on the weekends or recreational sex. These are the things that we want, right? And it's if I completely say yes to God, I have to lose that stuff. And that's the first thing that enters into our mind when we are encountered with God and when he's doing this stool thing and he's making us make a choice. It's the first thing that comes into our mind. But what really ought to be coming into our mind is what you lose. You lose your guilt. You lose your pain. You lose your loneliness. You can be in a crowd full of people in a loving home and you're still lonely. You lose your loneliness. You lose your selfishness. You lose your despair. Once you relinquish control to God, these are the things that you really lose. You know, all the other stuff is like, you think that you own them, but you really don't. You really don't. And it's not like God wants to take away your cool stuff. You know, this is, I think that this is one of the biggest lies and one of the biggest deceptions uh, that the enemy puts on us is that when you're called to be a Christian, your life gets boring and dull and you can no longer have fun. And there's a lot of really bored, miserable Christians because they've bought into this lie. They think this is the way that it should be. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. I can't, you know, I can't go to the movies because I have to go to the Bible study. So this is the way that we think. We feel like we can't have fun anymore. Now, how do you know if you have an idol that is dragging you down, that's attached to your life, that's keeping you from saying, yes, God? This is how you know. Can you give it away? Can you give it up? Can you give away that relationship? Could you, all right. Can you, uh, I don't want to do that one. Um, Can you give away the material possession that you have? But I own it. I earned it. I worked for it. It's mine. All right? Okay, I'll just go ahead and do money. I'll just go ahead and do it. All right? It's my money. I earned it. It's my paycheck. Look, if you can't give it away, guess who's owning who? If you can't, if you can't, if you think that you own your money and you can't give it away, your money owns you, you don't own the money. If you can't give away, if God's working on you and saying, you're in a bad relationship and you need to give it up, and if you say, no, I can't, then that relationship owns you. You're a slave to that. And this is idolatry. This is what idols do. They put us into bondage and they subject us to slavery. And the only way that we can be free from something is that if we have the ability to give it up. I'm not saying God's going to take it away, but you've got to have the willingness to be able to give it up and the strength to give it up. All right, next thing, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, is uh, ingratitude. We, we can't really tra- say yes to God because we don't have a thankful heart. Like God's done stuff in our lives. He's done miracles. He's given us things. And, you know, he's, he saved us. He's even blessed us with provision. But we've long forgotten about it. We don't realize what he's really given us. And we just forget about the gift. Uh, the greatest gift, of course, is his son. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, Won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? See, he's not out to take away your toys. And he does want to give you stuff. But what he wants to give you is not what you want. It's what you need. And that is what we have to be thankful for. He's giving us what we need. And when we feel like he hasn't given us what we wanted, we have a mean little nasty attitude about it. Be thankful for what God has given you. It's a blessing. 
even the little things. All right, next major point, and this one I'm going to spend a little more time on, is uh, we have a problem relinquishing control because we are control freaks. Okay, now you don't have to raise your hand, but some of us in this room are control freaks. Like we have to have control of everything. We have our life planned out from moment to moment. We have the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. We've got, our, we've got our kids' lives planned out and everything is super organized because we have to have control. That's actually a good characteristic to have. I don't want to like downplay the idea of planning and making goals and setting goals and all that stuff because I did a whole series on that not too long ago. So I don't want to like contradict myself. But see, the danger of, of control freaks is they don't let God in at any point because they have to have control. They have to have that ability to be the masters of their own universe. They're in control. Now, how do you know if you're an unhealthy control freak? Control freaks, actually this is the fill-in. It stems, the, the inability to relinquish control to God stems from insecurity. Insecurity. Now, how do you know if you're an insecure person? Well, the thought of giving up control scares you. Like if you, if it, like it, it would be paralyzing for you to, to relinquish control or to delegate something to someone else. If that scares you, then you're insecure about that situation in your life. Maybe you're afraid that, um, you know, you're being judged and you won't measure up you're afraid of how people will perceive you if you relinquish control or if you're vulnerable, if you're weak in a certain situation. First uh, Timothy 1, verse 12, it goes over this. Uh, I know who I have been believed in. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until this day. So it's this, this area of putting trust in, in, in letting God control something. All right. What is the antidote to all of these points that I just talked about? What's the antidote for, for, uh, for having idols and insecurity and fear and, uh, and worry? Well, it is the knowledge of God. We have to know who God is and what he does. That's the key to the whole thing. Uh, in Psalms 145.9, the Lord is good to all. Did you catch that? That one's tough. He is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. So God has compassion on everything that he's made. He's good to all and he's compassionate about everybody and everything. That's a biblical truth. It's a principle that we need to start to build our, our lives around. All right. Second major theme is the area of our sinful nature. So we have things that, that are fear. You might want to, you could say that there's sin, but then there's also the fallen sinful nature that is a part of all of us. It gets in ways, in the way of us relinquishing control to God. Every person on the planet, saint or sinner, still deals with sin, with our sinful nature. We have to be honest of what this is and we have to confess it. God, I'm a sinful person and it's my nature. Heal me of it. Now, we talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the church and you know, serving, all this kind of thing. But all transparency here. When I wake up in the morning, I'm not thinking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God I'm thinking about the kingdom of Josh. I got to get some coffee in me. I got to, you know, I, it, that's all that really matters. And any Christian leader worth his salt knows this too. 
He knows that by nature, we're all selfish beings. And we have to realize that truth, that we're all selfish. We're all self-centered. We all want to take care of our own needs and please ourselves. And this sinful nature, it's, it's called pride. I want to do it my way. And it's not ba- this one's not based in fear or control. This one's based in, in, a, in the spirit of pride, meaning that I want to be the God of my own life and the God of my own universe. So how do you know if you've got the spirit of pride on you? Um, this is tough because this, isn't, this applies to seasoned saints, people that are Christians. It happens to you when you least expect it. Are you judging and are you condemning? Do you think that you are more spiritual than the other person? Do you think that you're more moral than the other person? Once we start doing that, we start, we start, slipping, in, excuse me, we start slipping into this area of spiritual pride. Uh, one of the other key things is you're finding fault in everybody else. Okay, we, we kind of read about that last week with Elijah when he said, I'm the only one in Israel that's doing anything good. No one else believes you. I'm the only one left. I'm the only righteous one on the planet. So once we begin to start thinking like that, like we're the only moral compass in the world, it's spiritual pride. And here's another thing. When our pride is so strong that we only rely on certain teachers or certain avenues to be taught from. Now, you guys honor me today because you came to hear the message from Granite Creek. So that, thank you. But uh, I'm telling you, there's other points that God will talk to you from. And there's other ways and other avenues that God is going and willing to teach you from. I am getting a lot of instruction, a lot of spiritual instruction from my six-year-old. I don't know where she's coming up with this stuff. But it, it, it's, it's getting me. Now, I can be, oh, you're just, a six, you're just an ignorant little six-year-old girl. I'm much more spiritual than you. I, I don't need to be instructed by you. I don't need to learn from you. That, my friends, is spiritual pride. So if you think that you can't learn from someone that is below you, then, then, then you're being puffed up. You're being puffed up. I'm not saying you don't discern words from other people, but you have to be willing to let God use other people to talk specifically to you and instruct you. And it's, it's humbling. It's humbling. But if you're thinking to yourself, I can only learn if I'm sitting under, I don't know, give me a famous preacher. Billy Graham. It's Billy Graham or nothing. He is the authority on the Christian life. And, and no one else is going to be good enough. Well, that's spiritual pride. All right. Um, avarice is another thing. What is avarice? Avarice is um, taking our relationship with God and turning it into religion, not being content with the spirituality that he's giving, given us. What does that look like? Um, knowledge of God is extremely important. We have to know who we are praying to. We have to know who we are worshiping and who we're singing about. It is key. It is critical. It is vital. But our relationship with God does not stop at knowledge. If done right, our relationship with God goes from knowledge into wisdom. Knowledge is information. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is understanding. Wisdom is the intimacy that we need to have with God. Wisdom goes beyond knowledge. If knowledge is information, wisdom is the emotional embrace. It's the kiss. And we have to have wisdom. Wisdom is supreme, the Bible tells us in Proverbs. It's supreme. You've got to have a balance of knowledge and wisdom. And so what the trap is, and actually what the sin is, is that we abandon the wisdom and we focus on just knowledge. Another way to say it is all we're we're concerned about is the intellectual side of the scriptures and we have no relationship. 
This is seen when, when people, okay, this is difficult because you can, you know, you can be fed by the word, right? We believe that. But if all you're doing is reading books, reading books, reading books, and reading more scripture, memorizing more scripture, and there is no, there is no um, living out of it, if there is no um, function that follows the form, this book is all about form and function. It's all about, it's, it's word and deed is the key to the book. If there is no word and deed, if there is no information without intimacy, you've created a religion. You've created a sin. You've created a system to control God. You have to have control. So you're, you're going to be obsessed with systematic theology, but you've lost your love. You've lost the connection with your creator. You've lost that intimate embrace. It all went up to the head, and there's no, there's no connection there at all. And it's a scary place to be. It's what the Pharisees did. Luxury is another thing that is a sin. Okay, so uh, luxury was the best word that I could come up with on this one. But um, whenever we approach God or we come at God with only the desires to, to be blessed, that's sin. If we're just approaching him to say, I, I want to be blessed by you. I want your toys. I just don't want you. I want, uh, I want your inheritance, but I don't want to sit down at the table and eat with you. Eat with you. And, and Christianity has fallen into this trap. It's called prosperity gospel. I'm only, I'm only going to hang out with God so I can get something out of him. So he'll bless my life. He is out to bless you. Don't, I mean, no mistake about that. But our priorities have to be wrong. Our priorities are usually wrong. Our priority should be wanting to be in God's presence over wanting to get God's toys. It's sin. It keeps God off the stool when we, when we approach him that way because there's conditions. The condition is, I, if you don't bless me, I'm not going to love you. That's the condition that we place on him. And then um, the next point under sin is, is wrath or anger. And this, one is, is, this one's kind of definitely applicable to our week. Because we've all have experienced anger, right? And rightfully so, I'll add. But wrath, anger, gets in the way of us letting God be number one. It gets in the way of us letting God choose our life direction. And how does it look like? Okay, because the Bible tells us that, uh, that Jesus was angry. Paul says, uh, get angry, but don't sin. And when we experience atrocities and injustices in our world, it is well and good to have a righteous indignation that boils up with inside of us. It is okay to be angry about this situation, but not sin. So what does that look like? How, do you, how are you angry but not sinning? Well, there's a couple things that we need to pay attention to when we, when we think about it. Um, uh, Italians are, are, are great people because they have the ability to express their anger, right? Which is actually a good thing. Now, there's a ton of angry people on the planet that are introverted. I, I'm an introvert, so I'm not, I don't express my anger. I don't express my feelings all that well. But there's really super quiet, shy people that are angry and wrathful. And you know how to tell them? It's because there's no sweetness about them. You have to have this sweet spirit. If, you're not, if you don't have this sweet spirit, then you've lost trust in God. You're, you have fallen into bitterness and rage and wrath. Another key indication 
that we've fallen into this sin of ungodly wrath is, this is going to be tough, is impatience with God. Have you ever been impatient with God? God, you're not moving fast enough. God, I want it now, and I want it here. I need to see you moving. And then we start to get angry with God. We might not express it. We definitely internalize it. But that impatience with God is a sign of anger. It's a symptom of wrath. And it needs to be given up. Because what we're really saying is, God, your way isn't good enough. Like I signed up for this, and it seems like it's failing. So you need, to, you need to hurry it up. You need to get on with your business, God. And then the next one is sloth. Sloth is a sin or laziness is a sin. And I'll just real quick on this one. I mean, we all kind of know what it is, right? But what it really is, is the unwillingness to be consistent and to do hard things. When hard things get come your way, when you're, when you're called to be consistent in your life and to see something through and you bail, that is sloth. And what that's saying is, I really don't want Jesus to sit in the seats. All right. All right, let's take a look now at uh, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you were here last week, we talked about Elijah. Elijah, a uh, powerful man of God. Like he was, he, there was something about this guy that tapped directly into the power of God. He got it. He grasped it. And he was able to do amazing things from, from being provided for, you know, with, with, with resources, food, water, what have you, uh, calling out prophetic uh, occurrences to calling down fire from heaven, running at a superhuman speed like Flash Gordon. He did amazing things. And as we read last week, you know, he thought he was on the top of the world, that God was on his side, that he was going to go into the, the capital of Israel and that the, the evil king and the evil queen, that they were going to repent because they saw all these miraculous signs. And if they didn't repent, surely the people of God would rise up in a coup d'etat and there would be justice. That wasn't his experience. He comes into the town all full of himself, all, all you know, full of pride, excited about what happened. And the people didn't rise up. In fact, Jezebel wanted his head. And this spun him out of control into a deep, dark depression where he's like, I just wish I was dead. And we're not quite clear if it was Elijah or if it was God that prompted him to go to the mountain of God. So what we do know, what his problem was, the reason why he fell into the depression is because he didn't know who God was or that he forgot who God was. Because if he truly knew God, he wouldn't have fallen into despair if he truly knew God, he wouldn't have faltered in this way. And so he had to readjust himself. And he went to, he went to Horeb, or Mount Sinai, where Moses went, because that's where Moses met God. And he went to meet God. And then, of course, he goes into this thing where he starts whining about God. God asks him a question, why are you here? And then Elijah doesn't even bother answering the question. He starts making up excuses. Oh, poor me. No one loves God anymore. I'm the last one. They've slain everybody. And, and then he never answers the question. And so finally, when Elijah is drawn into the presence of God, by what? What was it that called Elijah into the presence of God? The whisper, the still small voice. Good job, church. And he covers his face in reverence towards God. And he has that experience to God. And God gently pulls him back into his purpose. And his purpose, one of his purposes, was to disciple Elisha. To disciple Elisha. So he, he, God restores him back to his purpose. And, and, and ironically, the fireworks come back. He's like, 
He's like splitting rivers like Moses did and stuff, other cool stuff. But the fireworks came back after he was obedient, after he realized who God was. But more importantly, he connects with his purpose in discipling Elisha. And that's where we're going to pick up here. Uh, in verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with the yoke, with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his coat around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah, said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burnt the plow equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate it. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Okay, so what's going on here? What, what's, what, what's the Bible trying to tell us? Now, first of all, Elijah you know, shows up, encounters the young man plowing with his oxen. And what we kind of understand is for somebody to have 12 oxen like that, so this is a wealthy family. So this might have been a rich kid. We, just, we don't know. But um, what he does is he, he throws his coat over him. What is that? What's that supposed to mean? Well, he is actually literally or symbolically giving Elijah his mantle, his spiritual inheritance. It, it's very powerful, very symbolic. And Elijah knew what was going on. He knew that he was being called, called to a ministry, a powerful ministry. He got it. But what was his response? His response was, can I go home and kiss my mom and dad goodbye? And Elijah's response is, what have I done to you? Okay, what does this mean? This means... Elijah says, yes, Lord. Yes, but let me take care of my business at home first. And Elijah's response to that is, the way that I read it, is not too positive. He says, you know, what have I done to you? But what he's saying, what the, what the commentators are saying, is what he's saying is, I didn't call you to the ministry, God did, and you better take it seriously. That's what he's saying. And Elijah starts off his ministry with a negative foot. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself references this scripture in the New Testament. He says, there was a, there was a young man saying, I, I want to follow you. You called me. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, all right, let's go. I'm calling you. And he says, can I first go home and bury my, my dad? And Jesus says, no, you can't. Let the dead bury their, their dead. And then Jesus says, you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven with one hand on the plow while you're looking back. Direct reference to this. You can't be plowing ahead. You can't be moving forward and then looking back at the same time. You can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's saying is you can't say yes, but... You can't say, yes, Lord, but I want to keep this area in my life. And I don't want to give it up. You can't say, I want to live in two different worlds. I want to live in the kingdom of heaven, but I also want to live in Las Vegas. You can't do both in order to say yes to God. And like this whole thing, we just fear. We fear relinquishing complete control to God. Now, like I said earlier, knowledge is so important in knowing God. You got to know who you're singing to. You got to know who you're praying to. He's a good God. He does good things, and he's out to bless you. But more importantly, he wants, to, he wants you to rest in his presence. Now, a lot like this chair, right? I have a chair. It's an antique chair that came from the business back in the day. 
and it's really cool. You can, if you don't see it in the back, here it is. It is um, it's a, it's French made, Moroccan design, and made for a rabbi. I have the chair here at church. The desk is at home, and pastor has got the library. It was made in the uh, you know early 1900s, um, out of walnut. It has four legs. Star of David is carved in here with intertwining links. It's a beautiful piece of furniture. And so to carry on, you know, this chair illustration a little bit more. Um, okay, yeah, I could have Jesus sit in this chair and be in control. But this is how I want you to look at it today. I know everything about this chair. I know it well. I know its value. I know that a cat got to it and ripped the cushion. It wasn't my cat either. It was somebody in the church. Anyway, um, I know everything that there is about the chair. I have knowledge of it, detailed knowledge of it. That doesn't mean that I'm sitting in it. It doesn't mean that I have put my trust in this chair. And it's not until I put my trust in this chair now, God's chair isn't creaky like this one. And even though I'm sitting in this antique chair, I'm a little insecure about it because, I don't know, it could break. It's old, right? But God's chair isn't like this at all. God's chair is completely secure and completely stable. And he's asking us not just to know it's four legs and that it has a back and that it has arms, but to sit in it and to rest in his presence and to completely put our trust in it. You know what my prayer life was like not too long ago? A long list of requests and demands and whines and gripes. God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? God, I need this. God, I need that. And I was missing two major elements. First major element was... I wasn't even anywhere near God or sitting in his chair. I wasn't in his presence. I didn't even bother striking up a conversation with him. It was just my to-do list. So I didn't, I really wasn't in his presence. I wasn't resting in him. I didn't even bother to take the time to rest in him. I just wanted to get through my list of things that I wanted. That was the first mistake. Second mistake that I learned in my prayer life is I didn't start my prayer life off with trusting in God. Have you ever prayed that way when you opened up? God, I trust that you will meet all my needs. God, I, I am giving you complete control. I am relinquishing all this stuff to you. You see, when we do it that way, it's, uh, the Christian life is not boring. Jesus didn't design a boring life for you. He designed an exciting life. And it's not an antique chair. It's a very stable roller coaster chair that you get strapped into when you relinquish complete control. There's a lot of ups and downs. It goes very fast. There's unexpected twists and turns. But what we know about God is he knows everything. And he is in complete control. And he wants us to relinquish control, and we'll have an exciting, peaceful, graceful life where there is no limits. And that is what he's calling us to, to simply rest in his presence and to trust in his ways because he is good. He is a good God. He's good all the time, and what he does is good for everyone. Got to have the band and the ushers to come to the front. And as they're on their way up, I have one more scripture for you. This is uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. How do you say yes to God? How do you surrender? Don't surrender any part of yourselves to sin to be used for wicked purposes. Instead, give yourselves to God. Surrender yourselves to God. As those who have been brought before, been brought from death to life, 
and surrender your whole being. Did you catch that? Surrender your whole person. That's everything. Your desires, your hopes, your emotions, your fears, your bodies. Surrender, surrender it all. Are you able to, to surrender? To be used for righteous purposes. I was reading the New York Times last night, and one of the, the, the sub-stories of the tragedy in Boston, uh, you know the, the, the hero guy with the cowboy hat? Okay, remember him? Uh, he saved the life of the young man that lost both of his legs because he turned into kid it and he, he was there. They, they think if, if that cowboy hat guy hadn't have been there for the guy that lost his legs, the guy that lost his legs would have died. The guy that lost his legs identified the bombers. As soon as he came through, he wrote it down or mumbled it or something, and he said, I saw them, and I looked them in the face. That's a, that's a scary thought, huh? And it was from his lead that they caught these guys. The guy in the cowboy hat, years ago, he lost a son to suicide. And shortly after that, he lost another son to the war in Iraq. And when, when um, the military came to give him the news that his, son, his second son was killed in Iraq, he tried to take his own life because he was in such despair. And the soldiers violated this man's free will and they kept him from killing himself. What would have happened if that hadn't have happened? God loves us so much that he's gonna come into your life and into your loved one's lives too. You need to know, the ones that you're praying for that don't know the Lord, God will violate their free will for a time. He will, he, will, he will save them. He will show them that they have been saved. He will give them enough knowledge and information to know that Jesus is the Savior. But they will have to choose. And maybe he will use you to help them in that direction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us like a loving father that comes into our time and our space and violates our free will and says they don't deserve it but I'm going to save them from hell God I pray that everyone will know what you did for us that will know that you ran out in traffic to save us that you risked everything to save us and I pray that we would have the proper response. God, for seasoned saints that are, that are dealing with control issues, they, just, they have this fear of relinquishing control. God I, pro, God, I pray that you will show them that it's much better to give you control instead of the way that they've been doing it. Father, I pray that you give us all the courage to rest in your presence and to put our complete trust in you. We love you, Lord.